I think I met you in 2004, is that correct? Would that make no, sense? No, it would have been 2003 at Healy's Club, Jeff Healy's yeah. Club, where you took one of the greatest all-time photos of me back when I had a lot more hair. It's a side shot, and I remember, I'll never forget it. You had this a camera, this camera was like this big. No, I think it was my video camera I used. Was just it? took a video frame from that, yeah. Well, it was an excellent photo. Okay. And we duplicated the photo. We tried to duplicate it, the pose and everything, on my Moment of Truth cover. And I remember the ph photographer said, there's nothing I hate more than when someone brings a photo in and try to duplicate it. Why did you just use their photo? <laughs> Which I would have been happy to, but... You know, there's pixels and stuff like that or something. It's got to be a certain amount. But I have to tell you, that moment, the moment, I shouldn't say moment, but the time that I met you in 2003, I got to talk to you for about 15 minutes, 10 minutes backstage before you went on the show. And you made such an impression on me. Oh, I thank you. I've been looking forward to doing this interview, and it's been literally... Fun. A good impression or a bad impression? Oh, a great impression. Oh, good. And Is I that... will tell you what, what it was, like... I think we talked, there's a couple of things that from that evening that I completely remember. One was how blown away I was with your performance. And for whatever reason, not knowing you very well musically, I just thought you would be this guy who would play a lot of really long solos and mm -hmm. wank out. And, mm -hmm. and you didn't do that. You came out and the first three songs just blew me away. They just came one after okay. another. And okay. um, we talked about blues versus blues rock. Yes. And I think I might have called you a blues man, and I think you just quickly corrected me. Well, we don't want to do a disservice to the remaining blues men who are out there. Not many anymore. There's so many blues musicians. There's so few blues men. Mm -hmm. And Buddy Guy. But yeah, how do you distinguish the, the two? Now that you've been doing it, 15 um, years later, you're, you still don't consider yourself a blues man. Well... I think that uh, we can't ignore the ethnic roots of the blues. Blues is black, black is blues. And that's how I feel about it. And you come to it through mainly the British Invasion Band? Absolutely, coming to it secondhand through People like Brian Jones playing Slide on Little Red Rooster, or um, even later, you know, Mike Bloomfield or Robbie Robertson, you know, playing now that great stuff with Bob Dylan or with uh, Butterfield Blues Band, Johnny Winter a little later. And then somebody told me about, they said, uh, actually it happened when a friend of mine, were he and I were listening to records in his room, his parents' house. I guess we were about 14 years old. We were listening to Stephen Stills, Stephen Stills, Al Cooper, Mike Bloomfield, Super Sessions. And his older brother came in and said, I hear you guys getting into this Mike Bloomfield and Johnny Winter and Dwayne Allman. There's a guy you got to go see because he's the one they're all getting it from. And I thought that Mike Bloomfield made that music up himself. I didn't know that there was something that he was copying and and his older brother said you got to go see bb king and it just so happened that bb king was playing at a nightclub at, at motel 
a hotel in North Miami Beach where, near where I grew up. And, uh, and he was playing and uh, for a whole week. I mean, imagine going to see B.B. King every night for a whole week at a, a small nightclub of a hotel. And then on the Saturday, they opened up the show only to teenagers and had a, a teen show, a matinee, with no alcohol or anything like that. And so we went and saw B.B. King and set up in the front. And my parents, they were okay letting me go see B.B. King because they, they knew it. My, my, Had you seen much blues, oh, sorry, live music at that point? No, I hadn't. It was almost it's like the first thing I ever saw. So I definitely started off with the best stuff. But I wanted to go see, I wanted to go to the Miami Pop Festival, but my grandmother didn't want me to go because of what the Doors did and what Jim Morrison did in Miami. And my grandmother said, uh, I don't want you ever to listen to that band, The Doors, because of what uh, Jim Morrison had done. And so, of course, I became a big Doors fan when she said that. So, But they thought it was great for me to go see B.B. Uh, King, and it certainly was. It was the first time I ever saw the real thing. And then after that, I went to see Howlin' Wolf, and I went to see Muddy Waters. And then when I got with Alligator Records, which was the turning point of my career in 1988, I got to go to Chicago and see the people who didn't necessarily... See, I grew up in South Florida, and only the biggest names in blues made it all the way down to South Florida. And so in Chicago, when I got there at Alligator, all of a sudden I was jamming with Sun Seals and Coco Taylor, and I was jamming with Otis Rush and Albert Collins, and uh, I really, it was very much an arrival for me. Can I, can I ask you, at the age of 14, what do you think it was about blues music that connected with you? Well, like I said, originally it was the British invasion, and lo and behold, it was blues that they were copying. I just didn't know that. Not so much the Beatles. The Beatles were more into Motown and Buddy Holly and stuff like that, but definitely the Rolling Stones and the Yardbirds and the Animals. They were all about doing Willie Dixon songs and Bo Diddley songs. And I always knew I liked that kind of music. I just didn't know what it was called. And so I, I became the annoying teenager that would follow the old blues guys around whenever possible and get my want to get my picture taken with them or get their autograph or you know uh ask questions and stuff like that and and uh and bb king he was so friendly he was so nice and uh and uh greeted all us young people backstage at the uh Actually, in the hotel lobby, he met us all out there and talked what seemed like hours. It was probably only 20 or 30 minutes. But Which is he, still amazing. I know. It's like an audience with uh, Buddha, Buddha or something, you know. And, and really, you know, at least in this continent, it's definitely where I'm from, we don't have any, like, kings or queens or anything. Our, our roots performers, that's our royalty. You know, B.B. King or even Willie Nelson or... Earl Scruggs, you know, any kind of roots music, Ramsey Lewis, people like right, that. Right. So that's our royalty. And, and can I ask you, when you saw that show and when you met B.B. King, like, what did you take away from that whole experience? Um, a lot of different things. I mean, just the way he would sing and then he would play and then he would sing and he would play. And, you know, in the, in the pop music thing, people like play and sing at the same time, but in... With B.B., he would sing a line and then answer it on guitar. It's almost like he had a, a twin up there with him, you know, an evil twin that was answering 
whatever um, he would sing or play. And I just thought that was great. Um, I should introduce you. I am talking to Tinsley Ellis here at the Cadillac Lounge where you're playing tonight. We're, we're kind of backstage in that kind of a kitchen area, so you'll hear some noise. Um, but he's been kind enough to sit with me, and this is an interview that I've been waiting for many, many, many years. 15 so. years. 15 years. So I'm That's right. Not that we haven't seen each other. Every time I see you, you make an impression on me. Um, so, so the other thing that, that I remember talking to you about was I said to you backstage, what album of yours should I get? And without hesitation, you said, you said the um, Storm. Storm Warning. Storm Warning. I don't know if you remember that, but it, I found that kind of strange because I, I think at that point you were with Telarc, but without hesitation you said this is the one you got to start. Well, with. it is. It's the album that I've been chasing, making every album, chasing the whole feel and sound of, uh, and all the planets converged on that album. We had the right songs, songs like "Quitter Never Wins" and "Sell My Soul to the Devil for a Dime." And, and some of the covers we did, like Mercy, 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 and Cut You Loose. But we also had um, Chuck Lavelle, formerly of the Allman Brothers Band, piano player, and now of the Rolling Stones. And he came up from Macon to Atlanta to record that album with us. And we also had the introduction of a, a brand new young a blues rock phenom on guitar, a 14-year-old Derek Trucks making his recording debut mm -hmm. and just really tearing it up on slide guitar. He's still and doing that. Uh, he's still doing it. And then Oliver Wood, who is now in the Wood Brothers, which is a wonderful band, was my second guitarist at the time. So we had the material, we had the uh, personnel, and then Eddie Offord produced the album, and he had made oh, recordings with uh, engineered... Um, a lot of different British people like John Lennon and Yes and Emerson and Lake and Palmer and just a wonderful ears in the studio. And the first the first session he ever did in the studio was, was with the Yardbirds. So he goes all the way back to where I'm coming from in the first place. So all the planets converged on Storm Warning, but we're also very excited about the new CD, Winning Hand. Which is amazing as well. And I want to talk about that. But if I can just go back, when you yes. were recording Storm Warning, did you know that there was something special? Yes, we knew, and the producer knew. You know, usually when you make an album, everybody puts their amplifier in a little room separate from the other amplifiers so they can change their parts if they don't play something right. What Eddie offered, when he heard his play, he said, I want everybody's amp in the same room and what kind of mic do you use when you sing at a nightclub? And I said, you know, a Shure SM58. And he brought that out. He didn't use the $10,000 microphone. He wanted us to play just like we did in the, uh, in the southern bars that we were playing. And he captured us as if it was a live album. Well, it's, a, it's a stunning album, and uh, I thank you for recommending that. I will get to the new album, but I want to go back a little further. When did you start music? And I know you were going to university for history. Yes. And, and was there intent on following that path, or did you always think that you would become a musician? I always knew what I wanted to be. I had seen the, the Beatles. I'd seen the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, which was a very popular variety show in the U.S. in the early 60s. And the Beatles came on there in 1964. And I said, that's what I want to do. And I remember my dad saying, 
that's not a good idea, son. And, uh, and I did it anyway. And, uh, and I, I have never thought about doing anything else. And that's kind of how it is in music. You've got to be all in. But your dad was supportive of you, was he not? Was he? He was. When I got reviewed in the New York Times, he he all of a sudden he decided it was a good idea because I'm named after him, and he got his name in the New York Times. So, <laughs> so I did want to ask about your name. Yes. Kinsley is not a name that I hear very commonly. Is it a common name in the South, or? Well, in in uh, the American South, people. Uh, there are a lot of people with two last names, uh, you know, like an Elvis Presley or something. Elvis could be somebody's last name or something. So um, I was named after my, my grandmother from Macon, Georgia, and her name was Marcella Tinsley. Okay. So um, I became Tinsley Ellis. Have you ever come across any other Tinsleys? Excuse me? Have you ever come across any other? Yes, I have. Uh, male and female Tinsleys, but not very often. Okay. Um, so you, start, you decided you wanted to follow this path and you wound up joining the Heart fix, Fixers yes. many, many years ago. This was your first band, is that correct? Or? Well, I, had a band, I was with a band called the Alley Cats before that, although we didn't make any recordings. But when I got with the Heart Fixers, we did four albums in the 1980s, one of them backing up uh, blues legend Nappy Brown. We rediscovered Nappy Brown. He had been a rhythm and blues star in the 1950s, a part of the Alan Freed uh, theater shows with, along with Buddy Holly and Little Richard and stuff like that. We were just rediscovered him. He had been ch uh, singing in nothing but church for many years in South Carolina. So we brought him out and we did an album with him and and then I did an album where I was the singer in 1986 called Cool On It. And Cool On It is the album that brought me to the attention of Alligator Records, who I signed with in 1988. So what was it like to become, awesomely become the, the singer of the band? Well, it wasn't very, I wasn't very good at it at first. I had always, <clears throat> we had a singer before Nappy Brown named Chicago Bob Nelson. He had performed and recorded with uh, people like John Lee Hooker and and he did some stuff with Muddy and with Wolf and uh, James Cotton but we would do a few songs and then there would be like a fanfare and we would bring up the singer on the stage so I would sing one or two songs before the singer would come up every night and maybe I would do you know a Freddie King instrumental or a, a Chuck Berry song or something like that and then bring the real singer up well, when I became the singer, it was more of an extension of the intro part of the show. We just didn't bring anybody up. And so in, in Georgia, where people were used to me doing two or three songs and then calling up the star of the show, at first they were going, well, when is the star of the show going to come on? And there wasn't one, so I had to kind of fill that void. Was that a difficult transition? A very difficult transition because... The Heart Fixers were known as, as uh, a band that uh, that backed up uh, some authentic African-American blues and rhythm and blues singers. And uh, then all of a sudden, I'm going to try to be the singer, and I'm in my 20s? Well, you know. So I took a lot of heat, and, uh, and it paid off. And by the time I got with Alligator Records in 88, I think I was probably about good enough to be the front person. How did you feel taking that heat? What's that like? Um, 
Well, it wasn't great. And I still take heat for singing because if you look at any, um, now this is just my opinion, but if you look at any um, Anglo blues band, blues rock band playing and singing blues music, the weak part of that is always the vocals. And they asked Muddy Waters what he thought about Johnny Winter and Mike Bloomfield, and Muddy Waters said, Boy, they play really good, but I believe we out-vocalize them. And that's a true story. And uh, so, um, you know, it wasn't until I started writing all my own material that I stopped feeling like a, a copycat or an interpreter. So if I write all my own songs, I'm not copying something. Because how, how can you sing a B.B. King or a Freddie King or... Alan Toussaint song as good as the original it's just not going to happen you're constantly compared with the original well if you write your own material you have to come up with your own singing style and there's nothing to uh, unfavorably compare it to but you also I mean obviously you had something that Alligator saw in you that they paid an offer yes it's a solo artist how big of a transition was that to be in a band and also become the Tinsley Ellis band with to yes. back. Well, um, at one point in the Heart Fixers, I looked around and none of the original Heart Fixers were there anymore. They'd either given up show business or uh, I'd had some falling out with them or whatever, and they were all gone. So it just appeared to be like me and and my sidemen. And I decided that would be a good time to start performing under my own name. And... Uh, and so I started playing under my own name in 1987. And then when I got with Alligator Records, I remember uh, Bruce Iglauer saying, well, don't you want to be Tinsley Ellis and the Heart Fixers? Because then you'll have your old fans. I said, no, because the longer the name, the smaller the letters. So just want to play under my own name. So I'm glad I did, because now I have um, I don't have to cram all those letters under the album cover. You know, I have this really long band name, and they're with really small letters. Makes a lot of sense. So the idea is to have a band name and act like where it's just like the Who, because they're really big letters, or or Share. You know, it's just C H E R and big letters. You know. Well, it makes sense. Yeah. So to tell me about um, songwriting, because I don't think you initially did song like your songwriting came to you a little later. It did. And tell me about that transition. And I think you write amazing songs. And I want to talk about one of them, um, Autumn Run, from the last, the latest album, which I think is stunning. But it, tell me about being a songwriter and how that art came along. Well, one of the one of the strong arguments against songwriting is that, wow, how are you going to top Willie Dixon or Chuck Berry? I mean, those are some great lyricists right there. But the other side of the coin is who wouldn't want to tell their own stories? And so I want to tell my own stories. I don't want to sing somebody else's stories. But I do do cover songs you know, as a part of the show, Freddie King or Junior Wells or Elmore James, you know. And at this point, what makes you choose those songs? That you those songs, they're just, they're just in me. They're a part of my DNA at this point. They, they've been with me so long and... Uh, I don't know. I think that if anybody's going to work in the blues idiom, they almost have a responsibility to uh, to put some of the 
We don't, we don't want to ignore the tradition of, of the blues, even if we're furthering it. I mean, even Jimi Hendrix did, you know, blues songs and stuff like that. And uh, so, uh, and the Allman Brothers, they did old blues songs. So it's fun to have uh, a good time with some of the classics every once in a while. But when I first started recording in the Hard Fixers, that's all we did is other people's songs. And was it hard to become a songwriter? It's very hard to become a songwriter. It's almost you bare your soul to the audience, and you know you're you're telling them what happened to you and what you feel like, and you might not be happy or you weren't strong in any given situation, and you're like nude when you do that, and um, so it's very difficult. And uh, but I uh, I've had some good success with songwriting and. Uh, I want to, to further it, and I want to be, be better at it. It's also interesting that, and I, I presume just because you've been a while, around a bit, you always find different things. Like the last album you did was more Georgia-based and maybe R&B-based. Right. And you also did an uh, instrumental guitar. Oh, I love that one. So is it easy to come up with different ideas? Also, the, the Grateful Dead, the Blues is Dead tour. Yes, I did a tribute, not a tribute band, but a... We did the blues songs that were performed by the Grateful Dead, and we went out and jammed on that all last summer. Some festivals that I wouldn't have gotten booked on had I just had I played under my own name. We put a little bit of a twist to the blues, and all of a sudden we were playing for people in their 20s instead of people in their 50s and 60s. And it was nice to play to a young audience because these young concert goers, they love blues. They just don't know it yet. They have to have it fed to them in a slightly different way. So how do you come up with all these things with different ideas? Is that an easy thing for you to do or is that, do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, because constantly you're not redefining yourself, but you're also presenting different ideas all the time. Is that something that comes naturally to you? Well, you know, I don't want to make the same album over and over again. Even though I think you could argue that Elmore James and Muddy Waters, they hit on a formula and they did the same thing over and over again, but it was just such a good thing, you didn't mind it. I like to do sort of theme, theme albums, and uh, you know, the last album I did was Red Clay Soul, that was more of a singer-songwriter, Southern, uh, you know, soul, Southern rock album. This album, I, uh, Winning Hand, I wanted to return to the guitar-driven sound that, that uh, served me well back in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to ask you about Autumn Run, which I think is just this, when I listen to the album, I have to always go back and play that song over again. I just find it such a stunning tune. Tell me about that tune. Autumn Run is a song about uh, getting older. You know, autumn is the season of uh, things slowing down and leaves falling off the trees and stuff like that. And uh so the song's about uh, how I, I guess the, uh, the simplest way to say it is how I used to be kind of a, a wild and crazy guy. And now I'm kind of looking back and, and somewhat relieved that I lived through it. And uh, it's a song about, um, about sobriety and hopefully maturity. And uh, it's a, a centerpiece for the album. And uh, we're not performing it live at the moment, but I think we should. I think you should too. And it's also the guitar solo. I mean, I love you singing in that song. 
But there's just something with that guitar solo, which I think is... Well, it's a, uh, the guitar is crying, that's for sure. Um, mm -hmm. It's crying. Nice job. Thank you. <laughs> You're on a tour right now that's three months long, four months long? Yes, a three and a half month long tour. I haven't done a tour like this in over 20 years. What made you decide to do this at this point? Well, um, the demand was there for one thing. I, I held off on touring at the end of last year and, um, you know, wanting to save uh, things for when the album was new. I have a great booking agent, and they were able to line up city after city after city, six, seven nights a week, all over North America. So this demand is not necessarily because of the new album. It was something that was building up. It was building up. Okay. And so how do you approach something like this? Because I know you're on the road a lot, and it's not like being on the road is a new thing for you. But to actually tackle a three-month tour, do you look at it differently? Like, I mean, do you approach the whole thing quite differently than you would if it was a three-week outing? Well, I think one of the good things about concerts nowadays, you used to, you know, we used to go on and play like from 10 o'clock at night to two in the morning. And uh, the audience for Roots Music, people don't want a show that starts that late or goes that late. So more and more of my shows are you know, us just going on and playing one long set from like eight o'clock at night to 10 o'clock at night. And uh, I'm able to rest my voice more and get some sleep at night. And because uh, I'd like to have at least six hours of sleep a night, I, I can't really function on too much less than that. And you're also a morning person, if I understand correctly. Yes, I love the morning. So I, I just, I find that con contrary to being a a touring musician and playing, because I, I presume that when you finish at 10 o'clock, you're not out of here by 11 or 12, mm -hmm. and then you're probably still up. I don't right. know if you can fall asleep very quickly, and then you're up in early in the morning. I don't know how that works. Well, um, I just don't want to miss anything. When the sun comes up, <laughs> that's when I get up. And I, I usually go to try to go to sleep about one in the morning or so, and get up at seven in the morning and have a day. And you usually travel during the day as a Oh, a lot of travel, a lot of driving, a lot of driving. How do you see the world, like the way you must see North America, traveling across America, must be so different from the way I see it. But when you go on a tour like this, how do you view that journey of the four months of gigs? Well, one thing that helps is that I've done it for so long, it's over 30 years of, of traveling the country. I have friends everywhere. And um, and I know where to eat, and I know how to get places. And uh, I mean, I knew where this venue was tonight without even having to use a map. And I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I knew how to get here. But you also have a certain discipline. I know we were just talking about having coffee, and you, you have a timing as to yes. when you can, when you can. How how regimented is your life on the road? I guess it's pretty regimented. We get to a town maybe at two or three in the afternoon, maybe have a couple of hours at the hotel to answer some emails, maybe even take a quick cat nap or something like that, and and then go to the venue and, and play the concert, and hopefully the concert's over before midnight or something like that, and, and get some rest and go on to the next town. And I... Uh, I'm going to continue doing it uh, as long as I can. I mean, look how long B.B. King did it. Mm -hmm. 
three weeks, we're basically around three weeks now into the tour. We're three weeks into the tour, yes. And how are you feeling? I feel good, but I, it, it, the first week of the tour, I lost my voice due to laryngitis. <clears throat> so I did two song or two shows where, with a really raspy voice, which sounded kind of like Joe Cocker or something like that on a bad night. But now my voice came back, so I'm happy. And then after this tour is over, what will you plan to do? I think we're going to keep going all all year round. I, I um, When I got to town here and checked my email, my agent had all sorts of offers all over for us to play. We're, we're going to Poland to play a big blues festival in Poland. Nice. It'll be our first time there. We played in Moscow and we played in Minsk, but I've never played in Poland. We've got the big blues bender in Las Vegas. We're playing at that and uh, with a lot of our friends. And uh, it's going to be a very busy year. I'm very grateful. Once again, you know, the, the album comes out, and I think it went to number one. Is that correct? Yes, so the album went to number one on Billboard sale chart. And then today it, today it fell to number two, but that's still pretty darn good. I don't think I've ever gotten that high on a chart before on Billboard magazine. Wow. That, does it still excite you the way it used to? I know the very, world is... I get very excited when the, <clears throat> when the album is brand new. I still find myself excited when the when the delivery person comes with all those hundreds of albums and open it up tear into it and look at it and this album i think is the 18th or 19th album i've done and i still feel like it's the first one wow yeah nice job and i think if you ever lose that excitement you ought to just hang it up did you did you ever question what you do did you ever think why do i do this or did you ever feel like hanging it up at any point no, but it but it seemed like around uh, 2001 or something things uh, got real funny, at least in the states. And uh, after nine after 9/11, and uh, a lot of nightclubs, especially in New York City, went out of business, and people were being more cautious with their money and not going out. And my bookings uh, kind of dried up a little bit, and uh, I thought, uh oh, is this the end? And then it turns out that, uh, you know, at that point I, I got back with Alligator Records and did a live album that kind of resuscitated things. And then I started my own label a few years back and that kind of changed things up a little bit. I was able to do what I wanted to do. And this album, Winning Hand, was actually supposed to come out on my own label. And then in the 11th hour, uh, Alligator Records, um, were so fond of it that I said, would you like to make a deal where, where you put it out as a finished product? And they said yes. And it's just a wonderful opportunity for me because you can only go so far on your own label as opposed to on a label that's been around for 50 years, you know, and knows every nook and cranny, every radio station, every writer, every interviewer. and. So I was able to take advantage of their machine at Alligator. And you've also been with them three times. So. Yes, this is my third time. They're very forgiving. forgiving and uh, <laughs> So was there ever a time when things got ugly and you said things you don't want to... No, no. Bruce Iglauer is one of my best friends, so that helps too. For sure. Well, and I'm even fine. when I had my own label, I still have my own label, Heart Fixture Music. I'm, I just don't have any artists on the label, but I still have the label and... When I had that, he, 
he told me, he says, it's going to be harder than you think. And everything he told me was true. And then he started helping me with the label. Tell me about that experience and deciding to do that. And obviously it's hard because you're an artist and you have to put in a lot of time into doing the business side of things. Yes. What did you learn from that experience of running your own label? <clears throat> it's uh, very time consuming to have a record label, a lot of forms to fill out. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, a lot of paperwork, a lot of going to the post office and mailing things, a lot of waiting to be paid. So now I understand why the record companies operate the way they do because they're waiting for their money too. But it's still something you will continue. Oh yes, I've got the label and I've got four releases on the label, uh, the, the four that preceded this album. And whether or not I continue on with uh, a label or st stay on my own label, I don't know. But right now I can tell you I'm making the most of the alligator deal. And uh, I would like to sign artists too. I would like to sign artists to the uh, Heart Fixer music label, but I'd have to find somebody that, that's out on the road doing it. I don't want to sign somebody that's just playing locally. Because that's uh, what it's about, right? Yeah, it's about touring, there. because you're not, not going to be on late night talk show TV playing this kind of music unless you're maybe 18 years old or something. And most of the time I gravitate towards older performers. So it's really important to take the music to the people. You mentioned the Almond Brothers before. Yes. I know I know they were a big influence. And they, Huge. And you played with them and everything. Can you tell me, Southern Rock, did you ever think maybe, uh, in some ways I guess you fall into that, but uh, did you ever think that you wanted to pursue that? Well, I would say that there's a certain aspect of, of at least the Almond Brothers side of Southern Rock in my music. Um, you know, mixing the blues that is... That is uh, my passion with the rock and roll that uh, that I'm it's my birthright to play that kind of music you know because uh, you know if you look at what Elvis Presley did he he took his upbringing and and then he took the songs that he liked and he put his own stamp on them so that's kind of what the Allman Brothers did whether it's country music or blues or psychedelia or uh, you know um, I don't think the Allman Brothers ever felt comfortable with the um, description Southern Rock. I thought they thought that that was, um, that, you know, rock and roll comes from the South anyway, so I just have to say Southern Rock and just say, you know, uh, rock and roll or something. Well, what a great band they were. Um, tell me about your Sunday morning coffee. Oh, yes. I, I started on Facebook which is one of my addictions now is social media. And um, every Sunday when I'm in town, when I'm in Atlanta, I record a different song acoustically and put it on there at about six or seven in the morning on Sunday. And I've done songs like Bob Dylan's songs. I've done, of course, you know, Sun House or Carol King, Buddy Holly. Maybe I'll do an acoustic version of one of my songs. And it's been great. People write about it, and I write them back. And what a great way to interact with the fans. And what does it do for you? Like, would you ever record these things as an album? Or like, <clears throat> like it's well, I think giving would, it away? I think it would be a good idea. Um, I think it would also be a, a, a you know, a 
artistic success, but whether it would be commercial or not, I don't know. I mean, one of the reasons I started my label is because no other label wanted to put out an instrumental album of guitar music, and I did get it, the Get It CD in 2013, put it out on my own, it did pretty good. So I think an acoustic album would be such a specialty album that I would almost probably definitely have to self-release that. And to do non-originals. I would do a combination of it. When I do an, uh, an acoustic show or an acoustic segment of the show, I'll go back and forth between uh, artists as diverse as Howlin' Wolf, then the next song might be a song by Leo Kotke, the next song might be one by Muddy Waters, the next song might be one by Bob Dylan. So the well, good thing about just me and an acoustic guitar is I don't have any you know, no preconceived notion of what the this, this show should be. It's just kind of a break in, in the middle of the show anyway. Right. And have you found social media to be a very good thing for you? Excuse me? Have you found social media like Facebook to be a very oh, good yes. thing? Oh, yes. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I hope they don't come up with another one because I'll have to sign up for that and take even more of my time. In fact, as soon as this interview is over, I'm going to check my cell phone to see who's writing me on Facebook. It's just a great way to interact with the fans. Yeah, which is probably something you didn't have as much to in the past, right? Well, most of the fans are people that, I, that I'd like to interact with. Occasionally, I'll get some some really off the wall off the wall stuff and I, I say well, I don't think I, I don't think I should write that person back but for the most part um, people are respectful of the artist's time on Facebook and they don't expect an answer right away or anything like that I'm going to tell you I was a little nervous about doing this interview because it's just been such a big build up for the last 15 years too 15 years is a long time to be and, scheduling and, and an it's interview. not like we haven't seen each other because I've probably seen you two or three times in the last yes. few years um, it's always such an honor, and I appreciate you taking this time. My pleasure. I'm glad it worked out finally. Well, thank you so much. And the timing was right, too, with the new album and uh, being in the area and the big tour and a, a fresh new year. It's a, it's a great album. If you haven't, if you haven't caught it yet, it's, it's called Winning Hand. you got to get it. Just for, Even if it's just for Autumn Run. That's Autumn how strongly. Run. One day I would love to do a video of that song. Yeah, it's such a good song. Thank you. So thank you for doing this. Thank you, my friend. Mm -hmm.